So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read from verse 21. Just a couple of verses, really. Verses 21 to 23. Now, Jesus is coming to the end of his Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I guess this is where the rubber hits the road. He's looking for a response. Jesus is looking for a response in our hearts and in our lives. So just before he gets to the final illustration where he talks about uh, two men who build their house, one on rock, one on sand, just before then, we get these words. And these are words of Jesus which can shock us and pull us up short. And we want to make sure this morning that we don't just gloss over them or ignore them and actually see what Jesus means. Let's read them now. Uh, Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Father God, I want to pray this morning that you will help me to convey your truth this morning. Lord, we know that all truth, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And Lord, I want to pray that this scripture this morning will equip us, will strengthen us, will reveal more of you to us. Amen. Okay, so you've probably begun to see as you've looked at these verses what the problem is. What could shock us? Jesus is saying to people, and I said last week, these are his disciples primarily that he's talking to. He's mainly speaking to his disciples, but he's saying, look, not everyone will come to know me. Not everyone on the final day of judgment will be entering the kingdom of heaven. And he says there'll be many people who won't. Now we might think, yeah, of course there will. Of course there'll be many people who won't because there's a lot of people who who know nothing about God, who are antagonistic towards God. They oppose God. Of course, yeah, yeah, I understand that. Jesus is saying here, there are many people, in verse 21, who say to me, Lord, Lord, who won't enter the kingdom of heaven. He's obviously not talking about people who are outwardly hostile to him. These are people who call him Lord, They've seen him as Lord in some sort of way, yet they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And as soon as we've got over that issue, we see the next one. Who will get into the kingdom of heaven then? Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. We might think, hang on, I don't get this. I thought that it wasn't about what we did. I thought we weren't judged on on what we did. I thought it was all about grace and we're saved by grace. We're not saved by works. I'm confused. It's a bit confusing, isn't it? So let's read on. Verse 22. It seems to get even more confusing. He says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Okay. So they're taking what he's just said. All right. It's all those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So you get people coming up and say, well, I've done the will of God in heaven. I've prophesied in your name. I've cast out demons. I've performed many miracles. Is that not enough? And Jesus says, no, it's not. That's not it. Well, surely all these good things, things are good. Surely all these things are from God. And Jesus says, no, they will still be sent away. Jesus will say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
what? So this is, they're, they're casting out demons, they're performing miracles, they're prophesying. That's evil doing, is it? Is that what Jesus is saying? Jesus, I'm confused by this passage. We might be thinking, I don't understand. Do we enter the kingdom of God by what we do? Or, and Jesus is praying, I never knew you. So do we enter the kingdom of God by who we know? By knowing Jesus? We're going to try and answer all of those questions today. And they're very important questions because the stakes could not be higher. This is about our eternal destiny. This is about where we will spend eternity. Because there will be a day that is coming when Jesus will return and he will judge us. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27, he says this, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. But there will be a day of judgment. There will be a day of judgment. I guess in looking at this passage today, the biggest question that we can ask is how can we be sure that we know God? Because that is what Jesus ends with. He says, to those who claim all these things, who call him Lord, Lord, say, I've performed miracles, done, driven out demons, prophesied. In your name, Jesus, he says, I never knew you. So the key to it seems to be, do we know Jesus? Do we know God? I'm going to use those two interchangeably, but that's what, it, that's what we're talking about. When I say, do we know God, I'm not talking about Allah or other gods, I'm talking about Jesus. Do we know Jesus? How can we be sure that we know God? Because according to Jesus, there will be not just a few people, but there will be many people who think that they did know God, who think that they do know Jesus, who think that they're going to be allowed into the kingdom of heaven, and they will be shocked when they are turned away. How can we be sure that's not us? It's a serious question, because it's not just one or two. Now, right at the outset, let me say this. God is not wanting us to be in the dark about this. God wants us to be clear on it. He wants us to be clear whether we've got a relationship with him or not. He doesn't want us to think that we have a relationship with him if we don't. He wants to reveal it to us. So I hope that at the end of this morning, we'll go out knowing at least whether we know God or not. Hopefully, we'll go out knowing that we do know God. I guess Judas thought he was okay, didn't he? Judas, one of the inner twelve. One of Jesus' followers, one of the ones Jesus himself had chosen. He'd gone out with the other disciples. He'd been around Jesus for three years. He was hearing his teaching. He was even getting involved in things. Jesus sent his disciples out, didn't he? Uh, In pairs to teach, to heal, to drive out demons. Judas was involved in all of those things. He must have thought he was fine. Yet he ended up betraying Jesus. And Jesus speaks about him in Matthew 26 and verse 24. And he said, the Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Judas didn't enter the kingdom of heaven. It would have been better for him had he not been born. But he was there among the disciples. He was there doing the stuff. But he didn't know God. 
He didn't know Jesus. Do you think, of course he knew Jesus. He was with him for three years. Yeah. But he didn't know Jesus. So let's quickly look at five ways that we might fool ourselves into thinking that we do know Jesus, that we do know God, that we have our eternal destiny sorted. Five things that we might think, yeah, that will mean it's okay. I'm all right because this has happened. Firstly, some of these we might think, yeah, yeah, I know that. Some of them might surprise us a bit. Firstly, going to church and being religious. I think that would be okay, wouldn't it? Many people think that by attending church, and maybe not even now, maybe the fact that they've attended church in the past, maybe the fact that they've taught in Sunday school in the past and been involved in some way, maybe being a deacon or uh, serving in, in, in some other way, it, it might, that's okay then as far as God is concerned. It might well be that you're um, a teenager here or a child and you might think, well, it's okay because I come along to church with my mum and dad and I've grown up with it. And that's just what it's all about. And surely I'm okay. Surely I'm in the in crowd. I'm in with the guys. I'll be okay. That was the problem with the people who Jesus describes coming up to him on the last day. Let's look at the parallel passage to this one in Matthew in Luke 13. So it expands it a little bit. In Luke 13 and verse 26. It's a similar sort of thing. Jesus has been saying, enter through the narrow door. Um, you know, there'll be some standing and knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. And the master will answer, sir, I don't know you or where you come from, came from. And then you will say, says Jesus, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. We ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. It's kind of like saying, well, we came to church. We were around you. People, there was communion. We had communion. We took the bread and the wine. We, we sang some songs that people were singing to you. We listened to a lot of sermons. Surely that counts for something. You taught in our street. You were here. We heard the stuff. And Jesus says, yeah, but I never knew you. Maybe you were there. Maybe facing the crowd. I don't know, but I've not got a relationship with you. I never knew you. People might say, yeah, but I read the Bible every day. I say my prayers. That's what my parents taught me to do. I go to church every week. Do you know? It's a sacrifice. It's a nice sunny day. I give my money. <gasps> you mean I didn't have to do all that? Jesus says, well, just being around me, doing the right things, doesn't earn you salvation. It's very easy for people to be in church without being in Christ. Jesus isn't looking to see who's in church. But I'm a member. I did the membership course. No. It's not the criteria. It was seven weeks. Yeah. I never knew you. We can know a lot about God without knowing him. There's someone who's in the, uh, in the North congregation. She's, uh, I don't know if she still is. She used to be a mad Kylie Minogue fan. She could tell you anything about Kylie Minogue. If you met Kylie Minogue and said, uh, and said, uh, and said to her, you know, do you know um, Nikki? Kylie Minogue would go, no, I don't know who she is. Oh, Nikki knows a lot about her. She doesn't know her. It's inconsequential, really. It doesn't matter. But with Jesus, you know a lot about him. Do you know him? Do you know him? Does he know you? That's the first reason. Secondly, we might think, but we're a spiritual person. I'm a spiritual person. You know, spirituality has had a bit of a comeback recently. It's very popular to be spiritual. Lots of people, lots of people in society would describe themselves as spiritual. And actually, the increase of spiritual hunger isn't a bad thing. 
in and of itself. You know, many people are realizing that, that things like science and, and rationalism and, and consumerism and all the things that we're told, this will satisfy your life, they're realizing that actually they're meaningless, many of them. There's no ultimate meaning in life to them. They, they can be helpful. All of those things can be helpful. But they don't hold the answer to life. So people get spiritual. But that, that spirituality can mean all sorts of things. It can mean a whole mixture of Christianity and uh, tradition and Eastern mysticism. The New Age, yeah, well, they embrace a bit of that, a bit of yoga, whatever it is, a bit of Buddhism, spiritualism even, even the occult. People can just pick a mix. There must be something in this somewhere. You know, I'll be a spiritual person. Now, these people might be thirsty. They might be very thirsty for something else. Thirsty for God, even. That's ultimately what they are, thirsty for God. People who are starved of water, who are so thirsty, will drink from anything. They'll drink from polluted water. It's not going to do them any good. Being spiritual doesn't mean that you know Jesus. Thirdly, but what about being a good person? What about doing good works? Lots of people, lots of people in society hold the view that if there is a heaven, they'll probably be okay. They get a bit nervous. They get a bit nervous being around Christians who say, yeah, I know, I know I will be in heaven in the future. I know my eternal destiny is with Jesus. And they say, how can you be so sure? How can you be so arrogant? You know, you think you're so good. But, you know, I, I think, I hope I'll be good enough for Jesus. I do a lot of good, do a lot of good in society. Try and help people all the time. Try not to hurt people. I mean, clearly there are some people who do amazing acts of bravery or heroism who wouldn't say that they were Christians. Many people would look at them and say, well, you know, they're, they're probably better than Christians. They're better than a lot of Christians I know. They do more, better things than they do. The problem is here with who is setting the standard. Who's setting the standard of what is good or good enough? You know, we judge things by our own human standards. We can only see what's going on on the outside of someone anyway. We can see what they do outwardly. We can see what they say. And we can think, that's great. They're an amazing person. They're such a good person. Surely, how can God reject that person? How can that person there be one of these who, who Jesus is rejecting and saying, away from me, you evildoers. They don't do evil. They do so much good, so much charity work, you know, helping people all the time. They've dedicated their whole lives. Yeah, they're good people by our standards. By our standards. But we can't see what's going on in their heart. Only God can see what goes on in each of our hearts. So we look at what God's standard is. That's the best way to judge, because Jesus is the one who will be the judge. It will be him who decides. In Romans chapter 3, and verse 10, says this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God All have turned away and become worthless together. There is no one who does good, not even one. And he goes on in that passage. No one, not one person can stand before God and say, I am good enough for you. Look at all the things that I have done. Surely that is good enough. Jesus will look at each one of those who comes on that basis and say, no. I mean, that's what these people are doing here in in Matthew 7. They're coming and saying, look, surely I'm good enough. I did this. I prophesied in your name. I drove out demons. I healed the sick. I preached your word. I went to prayer meetings. I did all of these things. And Jesus will say, no, you've not met the standard. You come on the basis of what you have done, 
and you'll fail. Someone's called it the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity. That doesn't mean that we're without any goodness. We never do anything that might be good. What it means is that sin has affected, infected almost, every part of our being. Inside, we are hostile to God. The things that we do, our good deeds, all of the service that we might do for people, helping people, whatever, it might help us make, make us feel better about ourselves. It might impress other people. It might make people look at us and approve of us. And that's a deep need in all of us to be approved of. And so we do things that other people will look at us and approve of us and be impressed with. But in terms of impressing God or being approved by God, it will cut no mustard. We cannot come to God on the basis of what we have done. How we have served him. How we have done this, that, and the other. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 25, Paul, um, I think it's Paul, talk, yeah, talks about uh, God to the Athenians. And he says this, he says, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need us to impress him. He doesn't need us to serve him and to say things for him. We're not going to have him think, yeah, okay, you can come in then because you've done all those things. No. That's not on the basis that we come. That's the third thing. Fourth thing. Surely we are in because I remember I prayed a prayer. I prayed a prayer at the end of a meeting or whenever it was, and I was told at the end of that that I was a Christian. And that's okay now, and God would always accept me. We can fool ourselves by thinking that. We can fool ourselves by thinking we're okay because we prayed a prayer. We said some words. You might be a bit confused by this at the moment. I remember I repeated it after someone. This guy said it. He was there. He was one of the leaders. And I repeated it after him. And that's it. I'm okay now. He told me I'm okay now. Entering the kingdom of heaven is no more about saying certain words than it is about doing certain things. We don't get into God because we said the magic password. Which, is, which can be what the equivalent of saying these words are. And it can do people real harm if they think that they are saved just because they said a prayer. Now stay with me on this one, because hopefully it will become clearer. I I used to work uh, for an organization called Tear Fund, and I used to go to lots of different meetings uh, with different, uh, different groups. And I went to Spring Harvest once, big Christian conference, Spring Harvest. I worked on their youth team. And... uh, as part of this, it was just a general youth team. There were 15 to 18-year-olds there, and there was a, a so-called evangelistic meeting happening each, each day. The first meeting, this guy got up to speak. He was a really nice guy, really uh, charismatic, good speaker, very engaging. I remember he spoke about us having a pick-and-mix culture, how we pick a bit from here and pick a bit from there and whatever. And he, uh, you know, he said, actually, God doesn't want us to just choose a bit from here, there, and everywhere. You know, we, need, we need to choose God. As far as it went, it wasn't a bad message. It was okay, but, but it, it didn't really explain much about our, our condition before God. It didn't explain to us about our sin. It didn't explain to us how God is a holy God. It didn't explain how God sees our sin. It didn't really explain about what Jesus' death and resurrection were all about. It was about, you know, choose God. Don't just choose all of these things, choose God. At the end, he said, look, If you want to choose God, I'm going to invite you to come forward to the front. About 35 people came forward to the front. And we were told if we were on the team, we go out and we pray with people who've come forward. Okay, fair enough. I went out, spoke to this guy. I said to him, why have you come out? I don't really know. Okay, 
well, tell me what was going on, you know, during the meeting. He said, well, I, you know, I began to think maybe there was a God after all. You know, I just come in, my parents brought me here, but, I, you know, maybe, maybe God is real. I don't know. I said, well, yeah, I think God has started to speak to you. I said, look, you're here for a week. I said, keep coming back and, and be open to what God is saying to you. Because I think God wants to say something to you. I think he wants to do something in your life. And I prayed for him that, that he would find out more about God. He would know more of God throughout the week. The next day, we had a team meeting with all the, the youth team. And this guy who spoke said, fantastic, last night, 35 people became Christians. They got saved. Everyone was going, yeah, 35. <laughs> I poured the cold water on. I said, well, the guy I spoke to didn't. <laughs> I don't know about the others. I said, it might be quite difficult for the two anyway. I said, because it was, it was a good message, but, you know, it didn't really, didn't really give the gospel. <laughs> he didn't like that. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> but I said, I said, look, it's really not going to help people to, oh, don't be so negative. Don't be so negative. They all came forward. And then the next day, you know, when they all came back again that morning, they, they, they told them, if you responded last night, you now know Jesus. You are saved. Go back. Read your Bibles. Pray. Go to church. You will always be God's. I thought, if that is all that they hear now, those people will think, yeah, God, God's done something. I experienced something of God. And, I, and maybe I prayed a prayer. Maybe I said some words that the, the, the guy at the front said to say, and I, I repeated it after him. And they'll go back and they'll start going to church for a bit maybe and they'll start to try and read their Bible and it'll be just a bit difficult. And they'll start to pray, oh, really difficult. And after a while, they'll just think, this is too hard. And next time someone talks to them about Christianity, they'll probably think, oh, I tried that. It was too hard. Or they might just think, well, that's it. That's all it's about. Well, that's okay. The guy said, I'll be going to heaven. I'll just live my life how I want now. But I'm going to heaven. Got my ticket. Praying a prayer... Saying a few words doesn't necessarily mean that you know God. Because it's only by God doing something in our hearts. And that is unseen. That's not about saying something outwardly. It's only by God doing something in our hearts. Convicting us of our sin. And then bringing us the forgiveness that we need. That we know God. And those words that we pray, those, that prayer that we pray may very well be us expressing what God is doing in our hearts. So I'm certainly not saying if you pray to pray, you're not saved. I'm saying don't think that it means that you are. It's what God's doing in your heart. It's what God's done in your heart. Otherwise, it's salvation through what we say. In the same way as it's salvation through what we do. Similarly, number five, maybe we remember a time a while back when we responded to the gospel. Or when we were baptized. And we think, well, surely it's once saved, always saved. Yeah, okay, my life might not be really going on that well with God at the moment. Maybe I've drifted. Maybe I've got into all sorts of things. But it doesn't matter because it's once saved, always saved. And I know whatever I do in my life, I'll be okay. God will let me in at the end. Maybe we think back to a time when we definitely, yeah, I really had an experience of God at that time. I heard a story of a guy who, um, who really did, you know, he had, a, he had a, what he felt was a genuine experience of God and really profound, and he wrote it all down. And everyone who he spoke to, he would talk about his experience. And he'd get, this, he'd get his little, you know, his, his, his bit of paper out, which had got it written on. He said, oh, what me tell you about my experience? And he'd, he'd always tell people about his experience. But that was all it was. It was one experience. But for him, he was like, this is it. This is what it's all about. Let me tell my experience. But the years went by, and he, he kind of drifted. He never, he never really knew God. He didn't go to church. He didn't see a lot of point. But he'd experienced God. That's okay. He'd had this experience. And every time someone talked to him about God, he'd say, oh, well, yeah, yeah, God. He said, let me tell you about my experience. And he'd get the bit of paper out. Well, years went by. And uh, a, a new vicar arrived. And, and came and, and, and went round and he, he, you know, he'd heard about this guy. So he knocked on his door and he came in. 
And the guy was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And he said to his wife, tell you what, go, go upstairs. See if you can find uh, that bit of paper. See if you can find, the, you, you know, the, uh, my story on it. And uh, a bit later, his wife came down with a, a bit of paper, which was looking, you know, a bit dog-eared and brown. And, and she said, oh, I'm sorry, love. She said, your experience is, is looking pretty shabby right now. And that's what it can be. It can be that well, we had some experience of God at one point. But that was a long time ago. And we may be going through the motions since then. And it's never quite got to that point since. And it, oh, you know. So we do the stuff. Maybe we come to church, maybe we don't. There's not a lot else goes on in our life. But we remember that experience. It can be looking pretty shabby. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, Paul says, Examine yourself. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. He's saying, examine ourselves. Look at ourselves. Are we in the faith? Do we know Jesus? Jesus is in us if we are. Unless we're not. How are we now? Not how were we 10 years ago, when we might have prayed a prayer, or when we got baptized. What's going on in our lives now? Are we in the faith? Maybe we need to examine ourselves and take seriously what Paul and Jesus say and see if we are. So if none of that means that we know God, what does mean that we know God? How can we know that we know God? Well, as we've seen, we don't come with our spiritual CV. We don't hope that Jesus will, you know, take us on like Lord Sugar. Oh, yeah, I like your CV. Yeah, you've got this. this oh, yeah. You're hired. No, we fall very short of the criteria. Instead, we come in humility. We come poor in spirit, as Jesus says, right at the start, at the top of his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We come knowing we have nothing to offer God. Jesus has everything to offer. We have nothing to bring to the table. He has everything. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life. Serving his father, never sinning. Whereas we were born with sin as a part of our nature. Naturally, we rebel against God. And death and the anger of God's judgment against sin waits for us because he is perfect and holy. God hates sin. He hates anything that is opposed to that holiness that he has. And we are sinful. And we cannot come to God, none of us, none of us are good enough. None of us are righteous enough. But Jesus lived that perfect life. He came, he was born among us, he lived 33 years of a perfect life. And then he willingly went to the cross. And he faced the wrath of his heavenly father against sin. Sin that was never his. Sin that he had never committed Sin that he had never owned. He'd always been in a perfect relationship with his father. But on the cross, it wasn't just the agonies of the nails. It was the agony against sin that God the Father is pouring out. At that point, he called out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the only time he had ever been out of relationship with his heavenly father. And God had forsaken him because he could not look on the sin that Jesus had taken on himself. Our sin. Our sin. His relationship with God was broken. It was a great exchange, it's been called. A great exchange took place on that cross. Jesus exchanged that separation with God that we had always had. When we're born, we're separate from God because of our sin. Our sin keeps us separate. And all through our lives, we're separated from God, and we will be eternally separated from God. On that day of judgment, when Jesus returns, if nothing has been done, we will remain separate from God for eternity. 
But Jesus offers us an exchange. He says, you can swap. You can swap that separation from God. You can swap that destiny where you will be judged for your sin. And I'll swap it for you. With, with the perfect obedience, the sinless nature of the Son of God. He did a swap. And when we come to God, we come to him not trying to impress him by what we have done or what we have said or that we prayed a prayer or we did this or we did that. We cannot impress him by that. We come to him absolutely, entirely, only on the basis of what Jesus has done. There is no other basis. Don't even think of trying to include anything that you have done in there. It's only on the basis of what Jesus has done. We receive Jesus' righteousness. We receive his holiness. We receive his perfection, his goodness. And we are welcomed in to God's family as sons, as Jesus is the son of God. And we are promised eternal life with him. It's an amazing swap. It's a fantastic swap. Not like the swaps we used to do at school with the little, you know, cards, football cards or whatever it might be. You know, where, you, where, you, where you're desperate for the one card that no one else has got, and you find someone who's got it, and they go, yeah, okay, I'll give you this card. You've got to give me 40 of your cards. What? <laughs> no. No, we, we don't. Because we, we have nothing to offer. We give nothing of value to God. He doesn't need anything. We give him nothing. Jesus gives us everything. And I mean everything. He doesn't just cancel the debt that we owe, the debt of sin. He gives us obedience and goodness too. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us the ability to live a sinless life that Jesus lived for 33 years. We can have that ability now because he gives us that. He gives us the ability to serve other people. He gives us the ability to obey God. It's like, it's like the story of an old man, and he, he, you know, he, he'd, he'd worked all his life, and he, but suddenly the Inland Revenue wrote to him, and they said, you know, you've, unpa- you've underpaid your taxes all your life. We just see, you, you know, you owe thousands. He's like, well, I can't pay that. Well, you owe it. It's your money, but I, I've got no money left. I didn't realize, well, yeah, but that's the situation. You've got to go before the judge. And he goes before the judge. And this is before the judge, and he hears the statements read out, and this is how much you owe. He's thinking, there's no way I can pay that. I'm just going to be judged by this, this guy. I'm just going to be condemned. I'm going to have the rest of my life imprisoned. And then there's a commotion that goes on in the court. And he finds out, actually, there's some benefactor. There's someone has, has, has paid off your debt. They've paid off your debt. You can stand before God with your debt clear. But it's more than that. It's not just that we stand before God with our kind of account at zero. It's like, no, this guy's not just paid off your debt. He's transferred 10 billion pounds into your account. You've got 10 billion pounds in your account. You are richer than you could ever imagine. What? A minute ago, I was in debt. I was lost. I was facing the rest of my life, the rest of my days, you know, in prison. And now... I'm richer beyond my wildest dreams. That's what God does. He doesn't just clear our debts. And sometimes we think that that's it. And that's amazing. And if it was it, that would be so wonderful. But it's not it. He credits our account. He says, now I'm going to give you this ability to live this sinless life. Why, why was it important that Jesus lived a sinless life for 33 years? Because that's the life we can lead now. We have the power. And, and it, the reality is we will mess up. But we have that ability. And in eternity, we will never sin. 
And we have so much from Jesus, so much from God, Un- unsearchable riches. And it's all what he's done and nothing of what we've done. That's what it means to put our trust in Jesus. To put our trust in Jesus. It means to accept God's guilty verdict on our hearts, on our lives. And to come to him trusting not in our ability to sort it out. Oh, I'll sort it out somehow. No, we can't. Trusting in Jesus' ability to sort it out. Not our ability to make it better. In fact, we come to him deciding we're going to stop make. Stop trying to impress God ourselves. We're going to turn away from our own squalid efforts and our own old way of living. And actually, we'll just receive everything Jesus gives us. Everything God gives us. And and as part of that, there's an ability to live a life of obedience to God in the same way that Jesus did. That's the good news. That's the good news, and that's the only basis that we can come to God. So finally, how do we know that's happened? How can we be sure? How do we know that we know God? Firstly, God has promised it. God has promised it. And God does not lie. Titus chapter 1, at the start, Paul says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. This truth, it leads to us living a godly life. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. God isn't a liar. Other people might make us promises and they let us down. God doesn't lie. And actually nothing stops him from fulfilling his promises because he doesn't get caught out by some unforeseen circumstance. Because he's God. And there are no unforeseen circumstances. So he knows that he's going to be able to keep his promise. And sometimes we don't keep ours because something happens. Oh, I, never, I didn't see it coming. Well, God saw it coming. And he doesn't lie. That's one where we can know God, know that we know God. Secondly, our desires change. Actually, we now know the presence of God in our lives when we've come to know him. So we desire more of God in our lives. We're amazed by what he has done. And so we, we want to know more. We want to know more of him in our lives. Psalm 42 uh, and verse 1 and 2 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet my God? There's, there's kind of that desperation, even in hard times, which that psalm's talking about. But even in difficult times, it's like, I just need God. I want more of God. I desire more of God in my life. And some people, it's not that people are telling us we should read the Bible, or we should pray, or we should give, or we should go to church, and we have to do it. We just want to. We want to do all those things. We want to be with God's people. People might say, oh, you know, come on, are you coming out to the club on Saturday night like you, like you used to? You think, actually, no, I, my desires have changed. Not that there's particularly anything wrong with going to the club. It's, it's not that. No one's telling me I shouldn't do it. But actually, I want to do something different. I, actually, I want to be with some of God's people. And actually, I, I want to get an early night because I want to worship God tomorrow morning. I want to be there in church. I want to be hearing from God. I don't want to be dulled. I don't know. We want to find out more about God. We might think, well, how can, I, how can I find out more about God? And you start reading the Bible. Wow, this is amazing. And the Holy Spirit fills us. And we can understand things even better. And God reveals things to us. But then we hear that there's, there's other things that we can, we can find out about God. And we say, oh, wow. There's a, so there's an Alpha course on. And there's a, an Introduction to What We Believe course. And there's Word Plus. Oh, yeah. Sign me up. Sign me up. I want to know about God. Maybe. Maybe that's an outworking of it. Because we want to know more. We might, we might there's some books about God. I can get, there's, a, there's a Christian bookshop. And there's a bookstore. I always wondered what those books were in there when I turned up on, on, on Sunday downstairs. You, you start looking, wow, this tells me all about God. I want to read that. I've never really read books before. I've always been a bit, a bit bored. But now I want to read. I want to know more. Who knows? It could be any number of those things. When Paul says examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith, some of these things are good ways to do it. You know, what's our desire? 
Is our desire for God? Do we have a hunger for God? Do we want to know more of him? Do we want to be with his people? Even when things are tough. Because what we desire is a good test of where we are with God. Are we growing in our relationship with God? And finally, our actions will change. Actually, we'll start to do good works. The works of the Spirit, the works that God has given us to do. And this addresses the confusion we might have had back in chapter 7 and verse 21, where it says, Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus isn't talking about someone coming and saying, Why do all of these things? But what he's saying is, things will start to happen. We'll start to do the will of God. We'll start to do the works of the Spirit because a relationship with God will change how we act. Ephesians 2 and verse 8 to 10 explains it very clearly, the whole thing. It says this, It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, not about you. It's the gift of God, not by works. So no one can boast. No one can come and say, it's all what I did. No, it's grace. It's the gift of God. And then he goes on. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's saying you don't come to God on the basis of works, of what you do, because no one can do that. We come on the basis of God, because God created us in Christ Jesus, before the world began, in advance. Why? To do good works. But we're not justified by those good works. We're not, we don't impress Jesus by those good works. We don't get acceptance uh, by God for those good works. It's all on Jesus. But then we do good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved to good works. We're saved so we can do the works that Jesus planned for us to do. Previously, we did, when we did good works, it was so that we would be approved of, maybe. Now, we don't do things for approval. We do things out of approval. We do things because we have the approval of God. Because it's the same approval that, that Christ had. And so we know we're approved of. We know we're accepted. We don't need to try hard anymore to just be accepted and approved of and forgiven. We can know all that. And out of that, we can say, oh, now I'm going to serve you. Now I'm going to love you. These works are the fruit that come out of our relationship with God. John, Jesus talks in John 15 about being the true vine, doesn't he? I am the vine. Verse 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. Good works. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do it on your own. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. In other words, if we're in God, if we know God, we will do good works. And if we don't have those things coming out, if we don't have the fruits of the Spirit, if our actions haven't changed, if there's, if there's no fruit... Actually, we're not part of the vine. That's a good way to test ourselves. It helps explain difficult passages like James 2, 14 onwards, which we haven't got time to go into now, but read it at home. Difficult, but people are like, James, what's this about? It's all, it all seems to be saying the opposite to what Paul says. No, it's not. It's the same thing. It's just saying you will do good works. You can't have faith without it affecting what you do. You can't know God and, and be unaffected. John says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. What's the evidence that we know God? That we love. That we love one another. There's things that come out. That's evidence. It doesn't justify us. It's evidence. By the way, if, you, if you've got children here and you, you like to teach them verses from the Bible, um, I've posted on Facebook a, a little tune that I found to that verse. It's quite good. It'll help you remember it. It's the fruit of our relationship with God. So 
We can have assurance that we know God. If we're coming to the base onto him on the basis only of what he has done and that his promise is sure. And that evidence is seen in our desires and it's seen in our actions. And Jesus says, examine ourselves. Let's examine ourselves. The good news is that you might be looking and you think, actually, yeah, I do know God. I do, because I've seen things change. My heart's different. But it might well be you're sitting here and, and you identify more with someone that, uh, who, who's like, oh, I do come because I ought to and because it's Sunday, because I was always taught to, and I do give, and oh, it's a bit begrudging. I don't really want to. I give the minimum I can get away with. And you identify with that. And you, and you might be thinking, I don't know. I'm not sure if I do know God. The good news is, you can come to know him today. You can walk out of here. Maybe you, you know, that's, that's what happened to me. I thought I knew God because I went to church. And then at a meeting I went to when I was a student, I heard the news. I heard the gospel. I heard pretty much what I've said today. And I thought... I don't know God. And then immediately that I realized that, the guy at the front was saying, you can come to know God right now in your hearts. And I thought, yeah, I want that. So I, so I responded in my heart. The time difference from me realizing I didn't know God to knowing God was about a minute. Oh, great. I'm glad I knew. And maybe you're thinking, I don't know if I know God. Well, you can know him in the next few minutes. Not by, because you put a hand up. You don't come to know God by putting your hand up. Not by walking out to the front. Not by saying some words. Not by filling in a card. You might do some of those things. You know, I may well ask people, if God's doing something in their hearts, to, to come out to the front. Coming out to the front doesn't do anything in terms of your relationship with God. But what's going on in your heart does. Turning your heart towards him. Confessing your absolute dependence on him. Trusting in Jesus, in all that he has done on the cross. Believing that you will receive forgiveness. And not only that, more than you could ever imagine. And declaring, God, I'm going to follow you wherever you lead. And he'll swap your sinfulness for Jesus' righteousness. He'll pour out forgiveness on your life. And your life will change. And you will desire God more. And you will start to do things out of approval. Not for approval. Because you'll know God. You'll know God.